for Troubled Hearts, part 2, from John chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. So we find ourselves in this chapter, part of Jesus' last words, his farewell discourse, as it is known to his disciples. Jesus is comforting his disciples after telling them that he is leaving them and they cannot follow, they cannot come with him now, not yet anyway. Why did they need to be comforted? Well, they needed to be comforted because everything that they had left behind and now built their lives upon in terms of their earthly dreams and hopes was now slipping through their fingers. It is not as if Jesus had not been telling them and prepping them for this. They had other ideas of who the Messiah was. They believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God and they somehow got the idea that through his public ministry that he would be shortly establishing his earthly kingdom. So much so that the sons of thunder, James and John, even wanted prime position when that would happen. But in light of his recent recent comments to them about his death and an imminent separation from them, they had become extremely troubled. Jesus then proceeds to give us some of the most profound words in order to comfort and reinforce the faith of his disciples first and his followers, us. A couple of thousand years later, still, we cling to his words. So last week we we looked at four things that Jesus said that we need to remember when our world goes into turmoil. Firstly, trust his word. Secondly, remember that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Then he's coming back for his own. And lastly, when doubts start to come, remember that he is the way, the truth and the life. The only way. There is one way, the only way. He is the only way to the Father. So we continue this morning with Jesus' departing words to his disciples. Now, let's recall that uh, he has been with his disciples for the better part, for three, three and a half years now. And let's take the last three years of Jesus teaching his disciple as schooling, as education, preparing them for ministry. And now in these last few hours that he has with them, the clock is ticking by. The one who was about to betray him, he has been given instructions to whatever he's about to do, to do it quickly. So there's not a lot of time left. So the theoretical part of the study of schooling is now coming to an examination of everything they have learnt. And then will come the practical. The practical involves severe trials and tribulations that will come when 
after the Spirit comes, after Jesus ascends and the Spirit comes down, they are the ones who are to go into the world proclaiming the good news. The practical involves severe trials and tribulations for us as well. What we do here on a Sunday morning, do the preaching, the teaching, the equipping, the exhortation, the challenging, the reinforcing of that faith because we know that this is a safe place. For now, this is a safe place together. But you go out there and everything that you're taught, everything that you hear is going to be tested. So you need this. I need this. Because this is serious stuff. And I don't know where you are right now. I know that some of you are being tested to the core of your faith. I know that some of you have doubts, insecurities. And I know that all of this stuff is making your faith a little shaky. I don't want to, while at the same time I want to comfort you and say, it'll be okay. I know that some of you, this is just the start. And yes, God is with us and our character will be tested, but behind all of that is the hand of God who is opening the way for us to spend eternity with him. And this is all still part of the training, the schooling, to make us into his image. You want to spend time in heaven? This is the preparation for eternity. So, let's get into some doctrine and theology and some, at the same time, some practical applications for us from God's word. First of all, see Jesus, see the Father, from verses 8 to 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have, I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father as a way to reinforce his faith who is shaky. When we go through difficult times, we want just a confirmation that we're on the right track. Give us a sign, give us an indication. Speak to me, Lord, just to, to make this faith real, that, I, that this is all not wasted, that this is in fact, I just need some reassuring, please. Philip is asking, everything you've told us now, please just show us the Father and, and that will be enough. That, that will do. Please. Now he's basing his request on the premise that is common today, that seeing is believing. If they could but see the Father, then they would believe all that Jesus has told them about the Father And then they would have some peace of mind, some comfort. Now Jesus is going to turn this reasoning inside out. It's not seeing that leads to believing, but rather it is believing that leads 
to seeing. You get that? Believing that leads to seeing. But we need to spare a thought for these slow learners because I think that's where many of us find ourselves most of the time. For these disciples, their Jewish faith told them, our God is one. That's the Old Testament, right? Our God, that's the Shema. That's our God is one. And, and if our God is one, God is the Father, there is a, a chasm, there is a separation between the Father and the Son. There is a separation. You can't be one if there is a Father and there is a Son. And, and Christians would later struggle with this and then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit. How on earth do you understand this? How on earth do you continue to confess our monotheistic faith, one God, and yet our God is one in essence, and then say there are three persons? We, of course, know this as the Trinity. Sadly, Jesus' opponents understood the significance of Jesus' words when he was preaching and throughout the Gospel of John they attacked him many, many times. So Jesus' enemies understood Jesus' words even better than Jesus' own disciples. They knew the implications of what Jesus was saying. Somehow it seemed to escape his disciples but now it's sinking in. This is why his enemies accused Jesus of blasphemy but for the poor disciples, this concept, the Father, the Son, this concept of them being, being one is just a little bit too much to take in. And then, of course, like I said, you mix in the Holy Spirit and all sorts of confusion triggered in, came in and uh, the early church had to struggle with just that formulation of what our God looks like doctrinally for us to understand. Now, Jesus' response to Philip is tinged with sadness. Now, one can understand his opponents not recognising or challenging who he was because they, they just simply rejected, they refused to listen to God. But this was... Not the case with the disciples. They spent all this time with Jesus. They had been listening to Jesus' teaching for nearly three years, more than three years, and yet here they were on the last day of his earthly life and they're still showing this incredible lack of understanding of his true nature and his relationship with the Father, his identity. Jesus expected his disciples to be further along the way and this is why he laments in verse 9, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? I think it, it sounds really sad, doesn't it? Still don't know who I am, do you? 
You're all messed up, mate. You're asking for something that has no meaning in light of all this time, everything that I've, you have enjoyed, all this time together, everything you've known of me, been in my presence, I've been showing you the Father, and yet here we are. Hopefully, in light of the teaching, in light of what we know of God's Word, that we don't bring the same kind of disappointment to Jesus as Philip did. While our heavenly teacher, our heavenly Father is full of grace and mercy, he does actually have great expectations on us. Expectations that we will grow in his image, that we will grow in the image of the Son, that there's going to be a hunger, a thirst to know more of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. This is someone who God used to write Scripture. And he was saying, I want to know more. He, he, I'm thirsty. I need to know more. I want to grow. I want to grow. I need to grow. I'm teaching all these people, but I myself need to know more and more of Christ and his power and his resurrection. How is your hunger to know Christ? Don't get lazy in your thirst and hunger for more of God. Don't do it. School is not over, not by a long shot. And how do I know that school's not over? Well, when the exams come. That's when everything you've known is going to be tested. All right? What's going on? You still trust me. Remember everything I've taught you? Remember the sermon on Sunday? Remember your study group? Remember what you read in my word? Okay, we're going to test that now. How's that going, by the way? By the way, you didn't pass the last exam. We need to go over that again. We've got a few teachers here, so you know what I'm talking about. Let's do that again. And again. And let me just repeat that again. Our Father has the expectation that we will grow in the image of the Son. Continue to grow in Him is the challenge, isn't it? Continue to grow. Don't, don't get stale. Continue to grow. Don't bring disappointment to the Father. Secondly, verses 10 to 11, the Father is in the Son. The Father is in the Son. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, speaking as a father and as a son, Fathers and sons have a special relationship that goes 
beyond friendship. As a father, I can say that I have genetic input in my son. I I also have character traits that go beyond appearance. Some of these show up in my sons, for better or worse. And beyond that, we, we have the influence, whether taught or simply observed by our sons in our behaviour as fathers, that has been transferred. That's part of the environment in which they grow. However, my sons, as they grow, they become more and more independent. They are independent beings. As they grow up, they become more and more self-reliant, make decisions on their own, for better or worse. It is the way that God has designed human life, isn't it? Now, I continue to speak to my sons and on some rare occasions they actually seek my advice. But ultimately, ultimately I cannot make choices and decisions for them. They have to own their own decisions. They cannot come back and say, Dad, you told me this. Well, Yeah, I did, but ultimately it's your decision, mate. For better or worse, they have to wear the consequences of the decisions that they make. This is part of growing up. And then they start their own family and the process goes on. Now, when the Bible says, I I, I say that as a way of illustration, when the Bible says that the son is in the father and that the father is in the son, It is way, 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 way more than I can possibly illustrate or explain in human father-son relationships. A big, big point in the Gospel of John is the obedience and utter dependence of the perfect son upon the perfect father. Jesus is so utterly dependent on his father's direction that whatever he says or does is nothing less and nothing more than what his father says or does. You get that? It is is a oneness. This is the essence. It's one in essence. There is no guarantee that my sons will obey or follow me in the same way, is it? It's just not going to happen. but not between Jesus and the Father. In him, we do not find the usual protest, stop telling me what to do, I know what I'm doing. You heard that? Then we realise, George, that those words that we uttered in protest to our own fathers decades ago have come back to haunt us 
as they are echoed in the words of our sons to us. There was none of that between Jesus and the Father. In fact, it gives you an understanding of the pain that Jesus went through when he proclaimed from the cross, why have you forsaken me? Because it's that oneness that, 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 is, that is so, so special, so that fellowship, because he was bearing our sins, the Father could not look. That is the best way that we can explain it. The pain was real. The separation And the bearing our sins was just too much. Now when Jesus took on human flesh, the oneness with the Father would be tested by Satan. And even in the temptation in the wilderness, what did Satan do but try and put a wedge in between the Father and the Son? Since then, of course, different heretical cults have sought to Move away, move the church away from this essential truth. This is why Christians affirm that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And Paul in Philippians tells us that he emptied himself when he became man. He emptied himself. And yet in Colossians, he tells us in Christ, all the fullness of deity, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So what is it? What is it? Is it empty and yet full? How do you understand that? How is that even possible? And that is what we read in John's Gospel. Jesus is one with God with respect to man. Jesus is one with God with respect to man in creation, in revelation, in authority, Yet he is one with man with respect to God. I'm confusing, aren't I? Follow me here. Yet he is one with man with respect to God in submission, in dependence, in obedience. This is the mystery of the incarnation right there. Then the Father and the Son. So think about this. The disciples are still asking to see the Father when all along they have been enjoying the greatest, the brightest, the most magnificent possible revelation and the glory of the Father without even recognising it. And that is sad. The mind of man, you see, is so slow in thinking, in just processing spiritual things that he stumbles over central important truths that these things have to be taught and repeated over and over and over again. Maybe even some of you here this morning are saying, Paul, we've heard this stuff ever since Sunday school. Why are you repeating this again? Because I have to. It is part of my duty. You need to be reminded over and over and over again. Remember the words of the song, of the old hymn? Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. That is why. 
Thirdly, verse 12, Jesus, in comforting his disciples, he tells them, he assures them of what they are capable of. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Let's look at these words a little closer. Jesus has just urged his disciples to believe his words because they are the Father's words. If they need further verification of that, they should just look back at all the miracles that they observed him doing. They were there, they were witnesses. The, 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 the miracles, they are the works, they reinforce, they back up his words, the words and the works. So, if now they're struggling to understand his words, just look back upon the works for approval of his teaching. So, one is the high road. The high road is to simply believe in what Jesus has said. That is the high road. There is the preferred way. The lower road is to believe what he has said because they have been reinforced by the miracles he has done. We mentioned at the start the old maxim, which is seeing is believing, which is what Philip demanded. Funnily enough, this is what Jesus earlier in the Gospel told the official who wanted healing for his son. And Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And this is what Thomas will insist upon, isn't it? There's unless I put my finger in his hand, I'm not going to believe. I'm sorry, guys. Now, I hope that we have a stronger faith than that. Not, not, so, not so, so flimsy faith that we, we need the evidence before we're going to start believing. We are actually, the promise is we are more blessed when we believe without seeing because we're trusting, we're exercising our faith. And remember that Jesus gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He fed thousands with a kid's lunch. He raised the dead. What could the disciples possibly do that was greater than that? Think about it. And yet here's the promise. Well, let's look at it in three ways. Firstly, the miracles which the apostles and the early church performed would be greater in number than those done by our Lord. Jesus was one. That's part of the emptying himself. He couldn't be everywhere at once. That was part of his humanity. In three short years, he... He ministered to men on this earth, but he could only be at one place at one time. Since then, his followers have preached all over the world, millions converted, families, communities, countries impacted by the power of the gospel. 
nations change because they base their constitutions and, 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 and principles of law upon the word of God. This is, is greater in, in, in number. But then, secondly, the other way that uh, we could say that what we will do will be greater than what Jesus did is because the miracles God accomplished through the disciples were greater because of those whom God used to achieve them. These were uneducated men. This was an area, this was actually one of the things that had an impact in the book of Acts, it says, and then they knew that they were with Jesus. The wonder is that God empowered men like Peter and and John to heal the sick, even raise the dead. Why? Because God loves to manifest his power in what? In weakness. In weakness. He loves to do that. So even as millions of believers have been slaughtered in 2,000 years, millions and millions and millions of Christians killed in so many different circumstances, persecution of the church at the hands of tyrants and emperors and others, it continues today. Even then, the gospel flourishes. Why? Because it is the power of God. How on earth can a a pastor who's been in prison for 10 years be more powerful than the Chinese emperor? How is that possible? Because of the God behind him. That's the difference. That is the difference. The blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church and that is the miracle of God. That is how God is glorified. That is why it is greater. Thirdly, a greatness in privilege. A greatness in privilege. And uh, I like the way that Don Carson uh, brings this point out. He says that uh, we we need to recall Jesus' words that among those born of women... He said that John the Baptist was the greatest. He was the greatest. Of those born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest. But he also said that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's from Matthew 11. 11. Why? How how do you understand that? It's because those who were now being converted after the coming of the kingdom of heaven, there is, a, there is a greatness that is conferred because you are part of that kingdom of which John the Baptist was not because he was part of the old structure. This is the new covenant. And you and I, Jesus said, you are actually, now we, we are sharing in, in that, in that greatness because of the Son. This is why we can do greater things. There's a greater thing, there's a greater privilege for us. I hope you understand that. How privileged you and I really are. And fourthly, answered prayer, verses 13 to 14. 
and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. These words on, on the face on face value seem wow. Pretty uh, straightforward. They don't need much of an explanation. And yet these very words, these very verses have been turned and twisted by many today. Um, they read them as, as confirmation that anything they ask will be granted. And I'm going to explain this a little bit because I think it's important for us to understand because this is at, at the heart of the mystery of prayer. It, it is important here that we don't isolate the words whatever and anything from the rest of the sentence. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, whatever you ask for, I will give you, nor does he say, I will give you anything you ask for. No, Jesus says he will give us whatever we ask for in his name, in his name. But even then, having said that, we still need to be careful. Many Christians treat the phrase in Jesus' name as if it were some magical incantation, a bit like abracadabra type of thing, to get whatever we want in prayer. Can you imagine the implications if this were really the case? If God is like a a genie in a lamp that you trip over at the beach, you give it a couple of rubs, say the magic phrase that God offers whatever your heart's desire, what would be the result of that? Because you see, the, the ultimate power... Is, is with the person that rubs the lamp, isn't it? Because it's your desire. So just, you know, rub, rub the lamp and then go forward. You've got three wishes. But praying in Jesus' name is not a formula at all. In the old days before... We had faxes and letters and emails and SMSs and the rest. If you wanted to send a message to someone in a distant land and you were a person of obviously some importance, you sent someone who went on your behalf and that's where we get the word for ambassador, someone who went on your behalf. And the ambassador would go in your name on your behalf, and they will do everything that you have instructed them to do. So to pray in the name of Jesus then is to pray as Christ himself would pray. That is the the implication here. We see this principle also in in the the first passage that we read this morning, 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence that which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. To pray in the name of Jesus means to pray for the things that Christ would pray for if he were among us in the flesh. Okay, we're in a group prayer meeting and Jesus is there. Okay, Jesus, what do you want to pray for? 
and then the rest of us, says, you know, we have all, you know, we want a, a car, we want a, a nice house, new guitar. Um, we want to pass the exams. Um, and then Jesus starts praying and he says, okay, forget about everything I said. I just want to pray what he prayed. Okay, that'll do me. That's the idea. Pray in Jesus' name is to pray for the things that he would pray for. And, and this understanding makes perfect sense in the context of Jesus' departure. Just as Jesus expects his disciples to carry on his mission in a, in a, in a manner that is not different but consistent with everything that he has taught them. He wants them to continue his work, his mission. So how did Jesus pray? Well, look at the Lord's Prayer. Look at, we're going to look at John 17 and other prayers of the Lord. Get an idea of how he prayed. So, but let's be honest here. There is no formula in the world and there are, if you want to, the topic of prayer is, is the most widely written about in, in Christian books anywhere. There are so many books written about prayer. But there is no formula in the world that can guarantee an answered prayer. And by answered prayer, I mean answer according to how you want God to do things. We've all been there, right? We all know what it's like to desperately want some assurance, some demonstration of divine presence, only to receive silence. We do everything that we are supposed to do. We pray the way we figure. We even pray the way we figure Jesus would pray. We live we worship and serve as faithfully as we can and still silence. The thing is that many times our prayers are not in God's purposes and plans. Our best interests or in the best interests of even others, they're not in those. They're not aligned. Quite often in our short-sightedness, we want quick solutions. We ask for things that would actually be detrimental to our growth, to our preparation for heaven. We want to skip the exam. C.S. Lewis writes about this very thing. He said... uh, If God had granted all the silly prayers I've made in my life, where would I be now? Where would I be now, he says. Another possibility for thinking that our prayers, when we think that our prayers are unanswered, is that we simply lack the ability to see the way that God has indeed answered our prayer, but not in a way that we expected. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to to the Bible. So even when we, we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit brings an edited version before the throne of God. 
this is what you wanted to say, right? That type of thing, okay? It, it, it is a deep mystery. Yes, God does indeed answer prayer. Not always in the ways that we would expect. Not always as quickly as we would hope for. But he does answer. Let me conclude this morning with uh, the prayer from a Confederate soldier. An old prayer, but probably 150 or so years ago during the American Civil War. And uh, you might have heard this prayer before. Here it is. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am, among all men, most richly blessed. Amen.